0: Hey, .NET Rocks fans, Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Juval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April.
1: Rocks episode 960, recorded live Saturday, March 1st, 2014. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at Telerik.com. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard.
0: Thank you very much. Welcome back to DotNet Rocks. It's another Geek Out show. Yeah. Hey, man. I'm trying to stay calm, buddy. This, I know, is a a very emotional topic for you for a number of reasons. Number one, if you go all the way back to our nuclear show, our first nuclear show, there was a theme there that there's a lot of misinformation about nuclear technology. And it turns out that uh, nuclear, in general, if done right, turns out to be one of the, the safest and most productive
1: forms of energy we have. And there's always, you know, the big thing here is there's no, hundred, such thing as 100% safety. Just like driving a car isn't safe. There's always safety issues. And the reason I'm anxious is that, uh, well, the reason we're doing this show, first and foremost, because we have a bunch of show sure. ideas, right? Sure. The reason I'm doing this one, and I, I think I texted you this this morning when you said, what one are we going to do? I said, Fukushima, because I can't get it out of my head, it's making me mental.
0: Right. And then we decided not just to focus on Fukushima, but nuclear accidents in general.
1: Yeah. Because I think it needs context.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Fukushima being the most recent one. Yeah. And so, of course, hotter in everybody's mind. Yeah. For right. better or worse. But yeah, I'm going to, I want to be calm about this. But <laughs> what makes me angry is misinformation, is frightening people unnecessarily. And and part of what's got me wanting to do this show is I have gotten tweets from our listeners saying, hey, can I eat fish in the, from the Pacific Ocean? Yeah. Yeah. And that really upsets me. So Well,
0: and, and uh, there was a meme going around YouTube last year, or maybe yeah, I believe it was last year. It was early last year in 2013, I believe. Where somebody hijacked a video showing, I can't remember what the actual graph showed, but it was a a video showing a graph of things that were radiating out from Japan, right? And flowing uh, all throughout the world and somebody mislabeled it as nuclear radiation flowing from fukushima and it looked like it was enveloping the world it was
1: a, it was all of the pacific ocean and what that image actually was was a computational model of the tsunami right the way what it really was was measuring wave heights yeah and so but it looked good and it looked frightening and somebody exploited that right to scare people with it yeah, let me see.
0: Exploiting data for their own purposes. Who would do that? Who would do that? Oh, it turns out thing. most
1: humanity. Yeah. All right. Let's, we better get on track. I, I want to read a comment from one of the geek outs just uh, that has got nothing to do with this. Just, yeah. just to cool it out. Okay. So, and in fact, let's, uh, I got one right here. This is from show 916, which is the barbecue geek out. All right. We did with Ronnie Shuchuk, yeah. who, who I thought the show was so much fun. And Mike Brixius actually wrote a comment just recently here saying, uh, this was an awesome show, but I do have a tip about reheating ribs because somewhere in that show, and I've said this before, I I talked about the fact that I think my ribs are amazing for about two hours. Right. And then they get ordinary. And if you eat them the next day, they're just not that good. But he goes on to say, here's how you reheat ribs. He took a class from Paul Kirk, who's one of the barbecue gods. Okay. No no two ways about it. Uh And he suggested a method of reheating ribs that works very well for me. Preheat an oven to about 200 degrees. Put the ribs in a pan with about three quarters of a cup of water. Now, the Mm. ribs won't be submerged in that. The the water will be below it because ribs are curved, right? Wrap the pan tightly with plastic wrap so you get a good seal. Heat it for about a half an hour. The plastic wrap can handle 250 degrees so it won't melt, and the water will turn to steam and it'll steam the ribs completely and actually it'll make the, the plastic bubble up a dome a bit and that will make the ribs moist. Huh. So that sort of speaks to this idea that you can reheat ribs just with steam. Okay. Which means that, you know, I could probably just stick ribs in a steamer and well, see if I could get it to work that one way of, In
0: fact, one of the, uh, you know, methods of of cooking ribs is to boil them or steam them.
1: Yes. Yeah. And and when you do pastrami, which I was doing this past summer. So I made my own corned beef, which is a pickling process. Right. And then you take that corned beef and you smoke it. Mm-hmm. That makes pastrami. Mm-hmm. And then you could – but the, the way to actually serve pastrami, because you're supposed to cool it after you smoke it before you serve it, is mm-hmm. you steam it. Remember when we were in Montreal, we were for Dev Teach, and we had that Montreal smoked meat? Smoked meat, yeah. It's absolutely a kind of pastrami. What do they do to it? Yeah, they, they steam always it. always steam it.
0: Yeah. And you know, there's a, there's a, uh, tendency to steam burgers and buns now too. That was, yeah. that's a, so steamed meat, yeah, it does bring it back to life.
1: And I I appreciate that. So, Mike, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET or in any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app, just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. All right, Richard, where should we start with this vast topic? (sighs) Nuclear accidents. I mean, this is this is going to be challenging. I guess we should sort of start at the beginning, and the, the first thing is just understanding radiation in general, because it's a complicated subject, and there's different kinds of radiation. I mean, how many times have you taken a a a, a cold a piece of leftovers and stuck it in the microwave and said, "I nuked it"? Right, right, yeah. And the radiation, there, while there is radiation coming from your microwave, it's not that different from the radiation coming from a light bulb. And believe me, there's a whole slew of people now. And it's very popular
0: getting rid of their microwaves because they're afraid of them. Yes. So tell me, what is it about microwaves that's radiation, and
1: and is it dangerous? Anyway, I can't say it's not dangerous, right? I mean, that's just not fair to say it's not dangerous. Microwave radiation, like any kind of non-ionizing radiation, like light and heat, all of those things, they're non-ionizing radiation. They are energy. Right Mm -hmm. In the case of microwaves, what they've come up with is a magnetron, a device that converts electricity into a wave that vibrates at this frequency of water, so that when it hits water, it will actually cause it to vibrate. In other words, heat it up. Okay. And because most of your food is not water, it goes through that food transparently. So it heats all of the water molecules in your food simultaneously, very different from infrared radiation- like you would use in a regular oven, which all of the food molecules react to. And so it takes time for the heat to travel from the outside of the food to the inside of the I food. I see. So, so that's one of the reasons why, uh,
0: vegetables cook really, really well in a microwave, like broccoli, for example. Right. You, you, because the water inside the broccoli cooks, it cooks from the inside out or, or,
1: Evenly through. Evenly through. Now, yeah. if you leave it on for too long, it will drive the water out of the food. Right. Which will make it hard and crunchy. But it won't make it radioactive. There's not no ions of radiation here to actually heat it up. Now, why is a microwave ever dangerous? Well, it does use a lot of electricity. Mm-hmm. If the seals in the microwave aren't working properly, microwave radiation can burn you. It can heat up the water in your flesh, yeah. too. And we have heard of people and i
0: certainly know people in my media family getting burned by reaching in there
1: and touching something that's been heated too hot yep and just getting a burn yeah one of the dangerous things in microwaves if you you heat water like take a cup of water and heat it up it can actually superheat that water if you run it too long that's right because there's nothing to nucleate for it to boil in because it's in a glass cup for example as soon as you touch it and it does create bubbles, it will flash to steam and splatter extremely hot water at you. You can get a nasty burn from that. And and hotter than boiling water. Absolutely. Yeah. It's superheated water. That is not radiation. Yeah. Ionizing radiation is a different thing from this. So you will get a burn, just
0: like if you get a burn from a flame, mm-hmm. but you won't get any radiation.
1: Or minute. a burn from the sun. Yeah. well, there, know, the radi- And th- there there's some dangerous radiation right there, huh? UV radiation unto itself is not ionizing either, although there are ionizing rays coming from the sun as well. Mm. But the UV radiation that gives us sunburns is more, it's not that same sort of thing. Okay. And can it cause cancer? Absolutely. Because burned cells can mutate. Yeah, just because it's burning your flesh. Yeah. So now we get into ionizing radiation. And ionizing radiation is a normal part of life. Okay? If you take a Geiger counter to a banana, it will click. Okay. All right. Because right. potassium is naturally radioactive. Okay. And our body has compensating mechanisms to deal with ionizing radiation, or we would all already be dead. So there is a normal amount of radiation that we're exposed to all the time. Now measuring radiation, especially ionizing radiation is a complicated process and there's a bunch of different ways to measure it. So we hear about rads a lot and millirads and
0: you know, how many rads can a, a body take before we should start to worry? Right.
1: So, uh, four basic measurement types. Radioactivity. How radioactive is that nuclear waste? And those measurements, the old-style measurements called a curie, after Madame Curie. Mm-hmm. The modern measurement is called a becquerel. Okay. Okay. So that is, what is the radioactivity of an object? Not a human, but typically your waste. Then there's exposure. So you are exposed to radioactive material that has a certain number of becquerels in it, and those are measured in roentgens or coulombs per kilo. So how much have you been exposed in radiation? Because, so to actually figure out what your risk is, we need how radioactive was something? How much were you exposed for how long? And that leads to absorbed doses of radiations, which are typically measured in rads. Although that is an old-style measurement. The new-style measurement is called a gray. Okay. But that's only what hits you, what you're ultimately exposed to, as an absorbed dose. Now we talk about the real measure in terms of what we care about about being sick from radiation, which is effective dose, and those are measured in REMs, which are actually rotogen, uh exposure to men, or sievert is the modern measurement. Okay, okay? sure. So when we talk about normal day to day radiation exposures that you deal with, your effective dose of radiation. For example, if you eat a banana, you will receive 0.1 microsieverts of radiation. Okay. Okay. That is totally normal. Compare that to your normal exposure of radiation. If you lie in bed all day, right, just do a normal day, maybe just walk around, nothing special, don't go, don't eat a banana, don't do anything, you're going to get about 10 microsieverts a day. Oh. Okay. Okay. So, so point 0.1 from a banana. Right. So you need to eat 100 bananas to reach the normal dosage you receive in a day anyway. Now, okay. let's start comparing that to other activities that we might do. Like flying. For, yeah. Spoken by a guy who flies 150,000 miles a year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, flight from New York to LA, typically 40 microsieverts. Oh. So about four times your normal daily dose for one flight. Okay. From a coast to coast flight. Okay. Okay. Just set a chest x-ray is half that. Wow. Right. What about it, a, what about a dental x-ray? A, a dental x-ray is half that again. It's about five microsieverts. You know, if mm. you talk about thing, you uh, think about something like a head CT scan. Okay. So using one of those. Big machines, you know, MRI type machines that will mm-hmm. actually uh, use high-powered things to to do measurements with you. Two mm-hmm. microsieverts, two so microsieverts. Wow! Right. Okay. So just be cognizant of the fact that we do medical treatments that provide substantial doses of radiation.
0: That's why we don't do them every day. Okay. And so,
1: tell me what is considered the safe limit. Well, safe, yeah, what is safe limit? We can argue this for one degree or another. They, let's talk about what will kill you. Okay. Okay, let's go to the other end. Let's go to the other end, sure. Right, let's go all the way to the other end. So, if you, a fatal dose, whether we treat you or not, nothing you could do about it, eight sieverts. So, how many flights is that? Eight sieverts, which is eight million micro sieverts, mm-hmm. and a flight is 40 micro sieverts, so you need to take 200,000 flights. To to die, to to hit a fatal dose. Now, recognize <laughs> you have to do them all simultaneously, right? Oh, that's right. right. It yeah. has to be an immediate dosage. <laughs> okay. So that's, that's a that's lot. That's going to be hard. That's And a lot if of you want to kill yourself with bananas, <laughs> if you can eat 80 million bananas, <laughs> which is a lot of bananas, that's a you're lot. You're dead. That's lot That'll bananas. do you. You're done. 80 million is a lot of bananas. That's a lot of bananas. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, and
0: so, just for the record, um, heating a cup of coffee in the microwave and standing in front of it, there's no, that doesn't even register in this There are no
1: sieverts, because it's not ionizing radiation. Because it's not ionizing radiation. That's the thing, right? And that's where people get confused, is, how much radiation do I get from my cell phone? Zero. Because it's not ionizing radiation. It's heat. Right. It's the equivalent of heat, right? These are non-ionizing radiation sources. What does ionizing radiation really mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, it means that there's a, a particle involved. So there's no particles involved in light. And there's not a lot of difference between visible spectrum light and microwaves and all these non-ionizing sources. You wouldn't right? call a photon a particle? No, photon's a wave, buddy. Okay. Sometimes it's a particle when we measure it, but it has no mass. Okay. All right? Typical ionizing radiation are called beta particles right they're neutrons or they're highly charged protons uh there are certain kinds of very high frequency waves like gamma rays that are ionizing because they're such extreme high energy that anything they touch they do damage to yeah so they're effectively ionizing radiation that's the complexity microwaves don't even come close to gamma rays okay we won't even go there then okay like it's not even in the same league and we got to include in the show notes uh this radiation dose chart. This is from Randall Monroe, who we've met and done a great geek out oh, with. XKCD is one of my favorite comics. Yeah. And uh, he put this together, uh, working with some folks in the business to actually talk about uh, radiation. And it really gives you a sense of scale. And so, although we've talked about the fatal doses and so forth, you know, the most extreme thing on here is the estimate that... If you had been able to stand right beside the Chernobyl reactor when it exploded, and that actually blew the containment vessel completely off of it so that core was exposed to the air, Mm -hmm. if you stood beside it for 10 minutes, you would have received 50 sieverts of radiation, right? Or five, six, seven times the lethal dosage. Wow. Wow. Right, but that's that's how extreme you have to get before you start talking about those those kinds of situations. Wow! So it's extreme, all right, and those are massive doses. So typically, we're talking, and the problem is, I think, as humans, and we run into this just with megabytes and gigabytes and terabytes. We forget that that's a thousandfold change. Yeah, the difference between a sievert, a micro sievert, and a millisievert mm. is a thousandfold change. I like the using
0: a CRT monitor for a year is one microsievert, which is equivalent to eating 10 bananas, 10 bananas (laughs) 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 extra dose from spending one day in an area with a higher than average natural background radiation, such as the Colorado plateau, 1.2 microsieverts.
1: Right. You get more radiation living in Denver than you do in Atlanta. Interesting. Because it's higher altitude. There's less atmosphere, which is the atmosphere protects us from ionizing radiation. That's so people, one of its jobs.
0: So people who live at sea level are getting less radiation in general. Absolutely true. That's exactly the point. Isn't that funny?
1: Yeah. So, okay. It's Let's common talk sense. about. We've talked about the sort of range of radiation. Should we talk about a couple of disasters? Because everybody, we always can start with Three Mile Island. Yeah, right? sure. This Three Mile Island is that, that was sort of the end of the American nuclear program. It yeah. Was a, it was a derailing event for better or worse. It really was. Um, because it, and it, you know, spawned TV, movies, all kinds of crazy things, mm. right? Like it, it really did create some insanity. So we got to This is back in 1979. Yeah. So we're in school, right? And in, uh, in Pennsylvania, the Three Mile Island nuclear plant has two nuclear reactors on it, one of which is still intact for that matter. And, uh, we hours of the morning. So. You gotta listen to the nuclear show to understand all of this. This is a light water reactor. Mm-hmm. And so it has a bunch of uh, uranium cores mm-hmm. in a in a pressure vessel that keeps pressurized water on it all of the time that's pumping very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that boils the water, that turns turbines, da da da. Yep. Go listen to the nuke show. That's what we talked about. Right. Okay. Yep. So the main pump failed. Now pumps fail. That's right. a normal thing to happen. Now, if the pump fails, that means the water's gonna overheat. Right, and you—if water, the steam, water turns to steam under extreme pressure. It can explode, and it can rupture containment vessels and so forth. So when the pump failed while they're waiting for the auxiliary pumps to kick in, there's a pressure relief valve. It's called pilot-operated relief valve that actually pops open automatically, and it releases some of that high-pressure steam into a containment vessel. Right, the containment vessel keeps it contained, makes it safe. Okay, all right, um, and you know that's what relief valves are for. Mm-hmm. Once the secondary pumps kick in, uh, that valve, the, and the temperature falls back down because you're starting to pump the water again, the valve can close. Yeah. Right? All is well. Valve didn't close. Oh. It stuck open. Oh. And there's a couple other anecdotal stories along the way where they were worried that that valve would stick open because this reactor had a very tough berth. It had a lot of problems being built. Yeah. And, uh, so they'd even ask for a light to be put on, uh, manual control for that valve. Hmm to indicate whether it was open or closed. Ouch. They didn't wire the light to the valve. They wired it to the button. Duh. So when the valve popped open, the light turned on. When you push the button again, the light turned off. We didn't know if the valve was closed or not. Some Now, we could spend a couple hours just going through all of the things that happened there. But the bottom line was with that valve open and people not necessarily realizing it's open, you know, you can't see it. You cannot see into this thing. These guys work blind. And as we get to talk about Chernobyl and Fukushima, just understand these guys can't actually see what's going on. Right. Right? It's too dangerous to be there. They are only looking at their sensors. They All they have is their instruments. Right. And they're complicated. And the failures are rare. And it's very hard to figure out what's going on. So as the temperature continued to rise – they pump more water in and there was a point where they thought there's so much water in there now. We're, I'm worried that they were worried they were going to over put too much water in and that it would actually blow. The, they would over pressurize the thing. So they right. stopped putting more water in and the water was leaking out through this valve that was open into the containment vessel. You know, no, no water escaped at this point until it actually uncovered the core. Yeah. Now the whole, by the way, the whole time this is going on, the core had already been scrammed. So, the cooling rods had already been dropped in place. And this is really important when we talk about Fukushima, too. The moment that original pump failed, the system worked as expected. Scram the reactor. Stop it from continuing to react. The problem, as we know, is that reactors don't immediately cool down. It takes days for them to cool down after they're scrammed. So, you need to keep pumping water over them to keep them stable. Right. So, even though the core is scrammed, it's still very hot. They need to keep pumping water and they started losing water pressure and eventually the core became uncovered and got damaged and the, the story goes on from there the bottom line is they had a major event they made a number of mistakes along the way which is always concerning when you talk about how important it is for people to know how to deal with this sure but ultimately uh it was there's a there's a 7 point international nuclear event scale sort of one being the zero being the lowest seven being the highest mm-hmm. this was rated a 5 and it's one of the only fives that has ever occurred on the nuclear scale because with all of the crazy things that happened there there was almost no leaks of any kind they law lo- they when the when light water cores get uncovered from water and they start to overheat they release a lot of hydrogen gas And that hydrogen gas is explosive. And they had to burp that gas off rather than rupture the container. Yeah. The one thing you don't want to have happen is rupture the container, right? That's the most frightening thing that could possibly happen. And ultimately, in the process of handling all of this water they were trying to cool, they did have to release some water into the river. Now, the water was not that highly radioactive. And it was confusing as to what the risk of there is. But and there's lots of studies been done now trying to figure out whether or not anybody was harmed by this. Certainly, none of the operators were ever harmed. It frightened a lot of people, and it really set the stage for the fear of nuclear power that persists to this day, right. But that's and make no mistake. Three Mile Island is a serious accident, right. Reactor Two is still a melted pile of core inside of the containment vessel, right? They've ne- there's no way to clean that up, basically. It's just sat there ever since. Right, I mean that's the interesting that the consequence of accidents of this nature is that you end up getting it under control and just leaving it. It was very scary for everybody here. Yeah, and to this day, they they run robots in there every so often. That that melted core is still sitting in the bottom of that <laughs> containment vessel. There's, not, there's n- really no simple solution to what to do about that. Wow. Now compare this disaster to Chernobyl. They're they're totally different leagues. The Chernobyl disaster by far is the most significant nuclear disaster that has ever occurred. First thing you know about Chernobyl is that this was a Soviet power plant. It was a type of power plant called an RBMK power plant, which is where n- light water reactors, as we know and love them, American design, Jap- the, the Japanese ones the same way and so forth. Most of them work the same way, which is the cores are actually dropped into a vessel and submerged in water. hmm RBMK reactors don't work that way. They're graphite-moderated reactors. They have water loops running through the core. So the cores are surrounded by pipes that have the water in them. So they're not actually submerged. The control rods are these graphite rods that actually moderate this. This is considered a relatively primitive design. It's from the late 50s. And after the Chernobyl incident... There was a big move to shut them down entirely, although – and and the Russians sort of agreed that they would do that, but they never actually have. As of 2013, there are still 11 of these reactors running, but they are – they've had additional safety equipment and so forth added to them. And if you read the whole story of Chernobyl – and it is a big, long story of disaster, horror, and, and incredible bravery combined hmm. – the bottom line is they were testing new systems to try and improve the power generation capability of Chernobyl. They wanted better turbines running and so forth. And they bypassed all of their safety mechanisms to do some of these tests, resulting in a pressurized explosion that actually blew the core across the city of Chernobyl. Wow. So the, the entire containment vessel failed. The core was exposed to the air. The graphite caught fire. And they, and a plume of radioactive smoke sprayed out, came out effectively went around the world. You you could, you almost couldn't ask for a worse case scenario than what happened in Chernobyl. When that core blew out like that, that's incredible, incredible level of radiation. That's where you get back to, to Randall's radiation chart with the 50 sievert exposal. That's just unbelievable. And there was no fix at this point. They literally just had to bury the core. Yeah. They poured sand on it, tried to put the fire out. They uh, Most of the people that died because of this were the guys who fought it. That They just rolled out folks and, and, and used helicopters and tried to bury the thing in sand and eventually cast the whole thing in a big concrete block.
0: Now, what was the lesson learned there? Was it you better maintain this stuff? I mean, was it
1: neglected? Because Invariably, it comes down in both. I hate to compare Three Mile Island and Chernobyl because the, the scope of the disaster is so vast, but you'll find the same things. People are not sufficiently trained to deal with disasters. You've put a lot of sensors on, but you don't necessarily understand them and they, they sort of break down. For example, the temperature sensor system in Three Mile Island to measure the temperature in the containment vessel topped out at 750 degrees above 750 degrees. It just spat out a question mark. It did that for 11 hours. Nobody knew how hot it was in there because they just didn't build gauges that were good enough. Wow. You know, that's the kinds of mistakes that went on. In the case of Chernobyl, the chain of errors, you got to think about the time. This is 1986. The Soviet Union was fracturing at this point, right? This is perestroika. In 1989, the wall would fall. Like, you know, this was not the Soviet Union's best time. And so the amount of money available for maintenance and for training and so forth was pretty limited. And as a result, you get this series of significant mistakes that ultimately leads into this incredible explosion. And that, you know, it's almost unreasonable to call that a seven on the nuclear disaster scale just because it's such an incredible disaster. When you get a core out into the open air and it catches fire, the thing to fear is the smoke. That is the most incredibly dangerous thing. Because you breathe it. Isn't yeah. It, right? because it, and it gets into everything and it goes everywhere. Right. Right. But, you know, when you talk about the way a reactor is supposed to work, right? A light water reactor. Again, you go, call back to that nuclear show we did. A couple of them. Right, right. Right. You're taking a core that is a combination of, of regular uranium and enriched in uranium, piled up in rods, coated in zirconium, so there's a, it's metal with ceramic cladding around it, stacked together in about 80, core, 80 cores total, submerged into water. The space between the rods is incredibly important, right? That is actually the rate of of radiation going on to that. And if you run it totally normally, does it six months or a year, depending on the design in the reactor, at the end of it, it's still very radioactive. We haven't used much of that material up at all. So in some respects, it's more radioactive. A lot of light water designs, especially the American ones, were actually designed to take those fuel rods and reprocess them to extract the plutonium for weapons, mm. right? And there, I mean the other reason for the reprocessing step was that at the, time, at the time when they were being designed, they didn't think there was that much uranium around it, so they were pretty careful about wanting to reuse it. And again, we get back to the original nuke story that we stopped pre-processing fuel to deal with non-proliferation. We've never restarted it because we found a lot more uranium. And so these cores are just sort of left after they're used. But normally, when you talk about normal fission products, if a reactor runs normally, the neutrons fly around and they hit uranium atoms. And most of the time, they split the uranium atom so that you get... A radioactive version of cesium and a radioactive version of iodine, and both those radioactives have short half-lives, about a week, so that after about a couple of months, they're not even radioactive anymore. They're the stable cesium and iodine. And we keep forgetting how cool that actually is. You transmute one product, a heavy metal, into two other products. But it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes the neutron goes in and it never go, comes back out. Sometimes several neutrons go in and they never come out. And they may actually make these heavier actinides, <laughs> which are much nastier, more dangerous, and more long-lived. So when you can run a core normally, you can manage it pretty well. In the normal lifespan of a core it runs for its duration. Then it's held in a cooling pond until it cools all the way down, which takes a few years, and then it's packaged up and and stored. When I mean, basically indefinitely. And I argue we could use those things in fuel with other reactor designs, which you can listen to the other new shows to get into that. Right. But when you damage a core or expose that core to air and it is allowed to overheat and catch fire, all of those different actinides and all those different radioactive products get spewed into the air and you, and there are all kinds of things. There are literally dozens of different radioactive nucleides in there and they each have a different behavior and a different half life and different effects. So if you spray them all over the uh, all over the ground, it's really hard to solve that, to clean that up. All right. We talked for half an hour. I think we should talk about Fukushima. Yeah, it was inevitable that we got here. Yeah. Well, this is what really kicked us off on all of this, is what do we do uh, about Fukushima? So what happened in Fukushima? And then again, this story has been told a bunch of times. There was an incredible earthquake. The Sendai earthquake was almost unprecedented. Uh, And the normal procedure when a big earthquake occurs that is going to affect a nuclear reactor is that the reactors are scrammed. Now, there are actually six nuclear reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi site. Three of them were offline. Five and six were still, had never really been run yet. Four was shut down for maintenance. One through three were currently running. And the normal procedure is to scram immediately, mm. just in case there's damage. Right. Seems a, like a sensible thing. And the funny part is, if they hadn't scrammed their reactors, I don't know that anything would have gone wrong, because the, the uh, earthquake did not damage the facility. However, half an hour later, a massive tsunami came through yeah and, and one can argue whether they had a big enough wall. Lots of people thought they had a big enough wall uh, uh, tsunami wall in Japan that day. And lots of people were wrong. That was a big tsunami. and it went over the tsunami wall in uh, Fukushima and it wiped out the backup generators. So we get back to the original issues around these second-generation nuclear power plants. When you scram them, when you put their cooling rods in, they can no longer generate electricity, right? 93% of their thermal capabilities are gone, uh, but that 7% is still there, and that is hot enough that they need water flowing over them all of the time to keep them from overheating. Now, for how long do they need to stay cool, Richard? How long do they need to be cooled? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in a, in, for years, actually. And how many years about? <laughs> well, you can, when, in a normal, if you're used up a core, if a core is used. Yeah. And you want to cool it down to take it out and replace it with another core. Mm. Okay. You can cool it sufficiently over about three days of steady water flow. Okay. So that you can take it out and put it in a cooling pond. You then leave it in a cooling pond for several years to make it cool enough to actually put it in a containment vessel. Right. That's the chain of things you need to do. Right. When things go well, that's the chain of things you need to do. Now things have gone badly. Right. We have this situation where we had these generators. Um, they were not in a, in a waterproof location. They were known to not be in a waterproof location. It was a decision made that, Oh, we have the tsunami wall. It'll protect them. We don't need to do this. And so those, though all those generators were destroyed and now they have an overheating they have 3 overheating reactors and they're trying to figure out uh how to get power right then the main thing they were working on is if we can just get some power in we can get the pumps running again and it'll be fine and they tried a lot of things don't let's not think for a moment that the folks working inside of fukushima weren't trying everything they could think of mm. the the issue here is you're so busy working on the problem in front of you and trying to de- go through your book of how to deal with a disaster that you don't always assess the overall problem. And the overall problem was at the point at which those generators were wiped out, Fukushima was never going to be a nuclear power plant again. Yeah. And it took time for the people working in it to understand that. They just didn't realize that. That's how serious the situation was. So, for example, there was an option to pump seawater into the containment vessels. And they didn't do it because they knew if they put seawater into containment vessels, they would ruin those containment vessels. So, there was a decision there where they said, no, that would ruin it. It's like they hadn't put together the, the, the points that said, you're already ruined. Right. It's already over. And you understand, one would argue, even in the first day or so, if they had been able to get power, everything would have been fine. Mm. They just weren't able to get power. Right? They were trying, there was a bunch of different options and ways they were trying to get electricity to those buildings and they couldn't find a way. And not, nothing worked. So, what was the response of the United States? Well, you know, now several more things happened there. There were explosions, right? Now we go through, like in Three Mile Island, eventually the cores overheat, Mm -hmm. they boil off their water, Mm -hmm. they start to disintegrate, Mm -hmm. and they generate a lot of hydrogen gas. There were explosions at Fukushima, and it was those hydrogen gas explosions. They were not nuclear explosions. Right. They were hydrogen gas explosions. However, that hydrogen gas had escaped from the containment vessels, and so there was radioactivity in that gas. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Now, hydrogen itself pretty much can't become radioactive. It right. was other particles. It's inert. Yeah, mostly cesium and iodine. Okay, which is the normal byproducts of fission right. from these reactors right. was actually released in a plume that covered a substantial minera- area. Now, understand, over time, relatively short amount of time, those products actually become non-radioactive. The bigger thing, the bigger concern, is the heavy products. But for the most part, the heavy products stay contained. So as the Fukushima crisis progresses, they eventually get power back to the buildings and start pumping water. But by that point, three cores have melted down. Mm. And there's an argument, Mm. which is still not resolved to this day in 2014, Mm. as to whether or not those cores are still actually in their pressure vessels, or if they've actually melted through the bottom of the pressure vessels and are in the containment building. They don't know. No, because you can't go in there. You can't go in there and look. Nobody knows. For sure. The, the current thinking is probably at least one of them has melted through the containment vessel. It's probably number one. And that leads to our current situation today. So right now, the problem is you have, there's, there's several problems. Let's talk about the three melted cores. This is a bad problem, but I don't know that it's the worst problem there. Okay. So you have three melted cores. They are now pumping water through those cores all of the time to keep them from overheating. Right. What you don't want is for them to get hot enough to melt out of their containment vessels. And you don't want them to get exposed to air so they could actually catch fire. Fire is the worst case scenario. Right. Okay. The worst thing that can happen in Fukushima is a fire. Because once you start having radioactive smoke, you have lost control of the situation in a big way. And there are plenty of arguments going on right now that they don't, still don't have that situation under control. I just don't buy it. It's been three years. Now, what do you mean you don't buy it? You don't, I don't buy that they don't have the situation under control. After three years, if they, we haven't had a fire yet, somebody's clearly controlling something, right? Hmm. They are definitely having problems. There's no two ways about it. But they're somewhat under control. And right after Fukushima, the our initial event in 2011, there was a lot of scare going around. Uh, the internet mm. and you brought it up where somebody took the tsunami wave profile sure. and called it a radiation plume and that it had gone everywhere and there's still sites going out there saying that all fish in the in the pacific are irradiated that they, they there was a video of someone using a geiger counter off the coast of california right showing five times the normal background radiation level and what is this there has been a massive die-off of fish on the california coast they say oh this must be fukushima right yeah you know, and, but every time one of these scares come along, somebody's able to debunk them. They actually go through and show, ah, you know, we measured this with, with, with calibrated, uh, Geiger counters and we don't have this level of, of radiation. We can't reproduce results. Right. Fish die off as a normal part of the cycle. And I'm not saying the Pacific Ocean is all that healthy. There's all kinds of reasons why you should be concerned about the Pacific Ocean, but I don't think Fukushima is anywhere near the top of the list. Right. You know, water is remarkably good at moderating ionizing radiation. It's one of the reasons we use it. And the Pacific Ocean is extremely big and can handle an awful lot of radiation if it must. I'd prefer that it didn't, but we're in a situation where we may need to. All right. Okay. Let's start talking through the, the big issues here. So we've got those three cores that are melted. We've been pumping water through them. But you can't just take the water. You Once you pump water into those damaged cores and it comes out the other side, you can't touch that water anymore. Right. Not that the water is radioactive. Water cannot become radioactive. But it has debris in it. Very radioactive debris. Heavy radioactive debris. Sure. And that's a big deal. So what the TEPCO folks are currently doing is they're pumping it into tanks. A lot of tanks. Okay? OK, and that's a problem because there's only so much room for tanks. They figure they have if they don't have any way to treat the water for another three years, they'll run out of space for tanks. But they have been building tanks as fast as possible. And those tanks are built in a rush and some of them have been leaking and they leak water into the ocean. They're right beside the ocean. The other issue is that there is groundwater, fresh water leaking up from the basements and getting irradiated, which is one of the best proofs that one of the cores may have melted through its pressure vessel, that the groundwater coming up through the basements of the plants is being irradiated. And and it's to the tune of a 100,000 gallons a day. Oh, man. So that water has to be pumped and stored as well. To deal with the core issue, there's Several things you need to deal with. First is, can we stop fresh water from leaking into the basements? Can we clean the water that's in the tanks so that we can try and get rid of some of it? Okay? And I'll talk about those solutions next. Let's talk about the real problem, the biggest problem at Fukushima. Okay. We all agree there's no way Fukushima is ever going to be a nuclear power plant again. Absolutely not. right? Right? So the real issue at Fukushima are all of the fuel rod assemblies, used and unused, that are already at the plants. All right? Okay. They have to steadily feed fuel rods to run these plants, and at last count, there's about three thousand fuel rod assemblies at Fukushima. Each one of those assemblies holds about eighty rods. Okay. Okay. They're big, and they're in—they're stored in tanks of water in the buildings where those explosions took place. Wow, yeah. Okay, so they're in a cooling pond. It's about a 100 feet above the ground in these buildings that have been damaged. So as of us doing this show, which is uh, March of 2014, they are currently removing rods right now from Reactor 4. Reactor 4 had a hydrogen explosion because they allowed hydrogen to leak over there from the other reactors, but its core was not melted down because it wasn't running at the time of the incident. And there's about 1,500 assemblies over there, and they're trying to take each of those cores, put them into a, a a cask, and ship them away to safer storage locations. They figure it will take over a year to remove all of those. So, here's the problem with the cooling ponds. Those ponds were in an explosion. Right. There is debris from those explosions in those ponds. Yeah. Now you've got a a computer controlled robot crane that knows exactly where every core is. And they know how to, so they know how to pick them up. Because even though these cores are really big, they're fragile. And remember that the spacing between the rods is incredibly important. So as long as those rods are intact and in water, they won't overheat. But if they were to collapse for any reason, it's just like a melted core, and it will be much hotter yeah. and much harder to control. It takes a lot more water and a lot more cooling to keep it under control. Right. So there's debris stacked and scattered on top of and in between these rod assemblies. So if the crane goes down and tries to grab it, what if it doesn't grab it properly because there's a piece of debris in the way? Or what if there's a piece of debris wedged between two rods and actually jams and breaks the rods? And oh, by the way, those are radioactive cores. You can't just swim down and pull the debris out. Ouch. So they have to be, they've been trying to find ways to remove the debris so they can safely move the cores. Now, in the case of four, because there's not much damage over there, they're starting to remove them already. But in the other three reactor buildings that all have these cooling cores, nobody's really sure exactly where they are, whether they've been moved by the explosions, what damage has occurred to them. And if any mistakes occur, if you dropped a fuel assembly so that it shattered or landed on other ones and shattered others, you could create a chain reaction That could lead to an overheat and a fire. That's not good, Richard. It's scary, and it's the biggest problem. And so there's a reason they're moving so slowly. But you still think they have it all under control? I don't know about all under control. I would hope that they're planning for a fire, that they've set enough equipment aside and have a strategy so that if they lose control of one of these things, they can bury it. Because that's pretty much the only thing you can do when a fire occurs. All right, and that's one part. And in the meantime, you have the other issue, which is you're continuing to, to stockpile radioactive water at an incredible rate. So there is a system called ALPS, which is called, which is this water cleaning system. It's called the Advanced Liquid Processing System, and it actually uses a series of different filtration methods to remove radioactive nucleides from the water. Okay. Over 60 different kinds of nucleides. The one kind of nucleide they cannot find a way to remove is tritium. You remember tritium, we talked about it in the earlier shows. It's actually an isotope of hydrogen. Yeah, remind me. It's hydrogen with three neutrons on it, hence the tri in its name. Okay. Right? Regular hydrogen has one. Deuterium has two. Tritium has three. Tritium is extremely rare. It, it occurs almost all, never in regular seawater very infrequently. It, it's it's a weird isotope. Nobody really knows what it does. It is ionizing, but it's a really low energy ionizing. So like it wouldn't even penetrate your skin. Wow. And so they're cleaning the water, but they can't get the tritium out of the water. Okay. And so there's a discussion going on right now. Of, should they just release that water knowing that tritium is as a, as a radioactive relatively safe? It has a very small impact. You know, there's no easy way to collect it because actually the fusion guys would love to have it. Right. Tritium is actually really valuable. But there's no way to really get it out of that water. So could they mix it into the ocean uh, and, and let that go? And they need to because they're going to run out of room to store all this water. Right. And some of those containers are leaking. They're trying to in- encapsulate them, you keep that water from leaking out. But it's hard. You know, these are a tough series of problems. But the reality is, they are working on it. They are removing cores. Mm. They are treating water. They are trying to manage radioactivity. Nobody's diluted in any way that this is ever going to be anything other than a cleanup site. That it's going to take their their time horizon is thirty to forty years. Wow, to clean this up. That's what it takes. And they and they're and they're saying that they believe they can clean up the melted cores. Uh, and they're, but they're saying they have to invent the robots to do it. Uh, and you know. Anybody other than the Japanese, I would say no way because nobody's ever cleaned up a melted core. Three Mile Island still like that. You know, Chernobyl still like that. Right. But the Japanese, you know, that's the robot society. If anybody could build a robot that could handle that kind of hard radiation and actually get in there and clean that up, it would be them. Yeah, I agree. So while I'm, I'm hoping for the best, the worst case scenarios are still available. TEPCO has behaved badly, right? They have covered their tracks, and they have made missteps, but the scrutiny of the world is now on them, and I don't see that they can really hide anymore, and the reality is we can deal with this. It's manageable. You know, and it's not a hip thing to say, but the safest place for those cores is in a very deep trench in the ocean. You and I have had many
0: talks about this over many scotches at many places in the world. And one of your ideas that, you know, sounds crazy at the onset, but is actually probably the safest thing if it can be pulled off, is to pour cement in the whole thing and move it off this off the edge of the earth, sink it to the bottom of the ocean, or something like that. What
1: exactly are you talking about here? Well, there is this whole idea of vitrification, right? That that just how do you uh, how do you just encapsulate this whole thing? Vitrification actually involves turning it to glass, and in a lot of ways, the, the the best cleanup you could do here would be to get underneath the entire structure, pick the whole thing up, and put it somewhere deep in the ocean. Uh, there are many nuclear reactors sitting at the bottom of the ocean today. There are absolutely. We've lost. Nuclear submarines down there, they um, Well, I knew that, yeah. Right. And then the reality is when you get into deep ocean, there's not a lot down there. And the water is very, very cold. Like, if the main thing it takes to get rid of this radioactivity is time, right? Naturally, the radiation levels will diminish over time. The half-lives are long. In some case, they're 10,000 years. They are long, but the... the the whole thing with a long of thing is come up with something really passively stable, and that is deep underwater. But uh, certainly not a popular position, and uh, folks are very concerned about all of that. The main thing you don't want is this debris moving around. So you want it contained. You want it in a container, and you want it somewhere where it will stay cold. And so keeping it cold like that is is the cold water is a pretty good solution to all of that but in reality is what we're going to do here is gradually remove each one of these cores pack them away hopefully they can they even if they never come up with a solution to the melted cores they'll just keep pumping water over it cleaning the water of its radioactive debris pumping it out into the ocean you know i I presume the alps solution will work long term uh but it's going to take time Mm -hmm. and uh You know, so far, so good, given a a set of missteps, but the situation could be so much worse than it actually is. And I hope they're planning for that, that if it does run away on them, they're not going to be caught by surprise. I would be stockpiling sand materials and a structural design to create an encasement over the whole thing if I had to, Mm -hmm. but uh, hopefully they won't have to. They'll actually be able to clean this up one piece at a time.
0: So, if there was an overarching theme, Richard, to this show, a message that you want to tell everybody, what is it?
1: It's a, while mistakes have been made, there are good people working on this problem, mm-hmm. and uh, they are making progress. And, they, and the biggest proof is that three years later, w- we still are uh, working at it. Yeah. We haven't had a fire. We haven't had a major disaster. Uh, or any more major than it's already happened. Uh, I fear if there's another earthquake. So, and one of, and they do too. One of the big concerns, the reason to get rid of those cores is that they don't know what's going to happen with those buildings if there was another earthquake. So they, they are, there is a pressure on time for that, but you can't move so quickly that you could make the situation worse. Mm-hmm. Be very careful of the hyperbole being spewed across the internet about these things. Right. Radiation does go away over time and the ocean, it's remarkably good at absorbing it. Mm-hmm. It takes a single event like this isn't going to poison the ocean near as much as day after day after day of dropping stuff into the ocean, whether it be plastic or, or pesticides. Yeah, and, you know. and
0: that brings up a really good point. We should be more concerned about heavy
1: metals in fish than we should be about radiation. I mean, that's a real danger. And 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 has been accumulating for ages. Yeah. You know, it's easier for us to be concerned about the ocean because of this one-time event that's somebody else's fault than it is to be dealing with the real issue, which is that we're all contributing to a damage of the oceans. And we could do a whole show just on that. But uh, I'm thinking we try to go for a lighthearted topic next yeah, time. Yeah,
0: next time we will not scare so many people so much.
1: <laughs> Take it easy, guys. So, folks… Uh, if you have any comments, please, uh, we want to hear them. Yeah, we don't get everything right. I've done a lot of research on this particular topic. It's something I'm looking at every day. I got new data today as I was putting together my notes, and uh, we want to hear about it. So uh, we're not shy. Hit us hard. Uh, give us your feedback, whether that's an email or on the website. All of it's fine, and we'll maybe we'll address more of this. Thank you.
0: All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.